0: Thank you. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound and today it's our seasonal roundup of cultural riches to see you through the summer and to keep you nourished almost until autumn. On the programme I'll be joined by Simran Hands who's a film critic for The Observer New Review, the writer Chris Power who's published his debut novel A Lonely Man earlier this year and the art dealer Kathleen Fox Davies who runs Black Box Projects in Kensington. The three of them are each armed with things to watch, read and see this summer so let's dive straight in and welcome to the programme um hello everybody lovely to have you here
1: hello nice to be here thanks
2: good to see you
0: yeah it's great to great to see you guys as well um and as advertised at the top of the program we've got quite a lot to get through so simon we're going to dive straight in with you and cinema and we're starting with a new british film called limbo what territory are we in here
1: we are in the outer Hebrides of scotland we're on an island we're in the middle of nowhere and we're hanging out with Omar, who's a refugee from Syria, who's applied for asylum and is sort of awaiting processing. And he has got worse signal on this island than in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, as one of his sort of fellow <laughs> asylum seekers has said. Um, it's a really interesting film by a director called Ben Sharrock who I believe is Scottish as well. It's his second feature. And it's all about this kind of waiting time in this liminal space on this island and kind of being a person of nowhere. Um, and so Omar has got a pink cast in his hand. We learn that back in Syria, he was a musician. He played the, the oud, the ode. How do we say that word? I don't know. Yeah, he's a
0: he's an oud player, I think. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah,
1: he play, He plays the oud, which is kind of like a lute. Um, he's an and- oud
0: boy. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, he's, he's refusing to pick up his instrument. He's kind of spiritually and creatively blocked. And so we, we're kind of spending our time on this island with him and, and kind of learning about the UK and the hostile environment from his perspective. But the film is very funny and it's very dry. And it's very deadpan. It reminds me of the films of Aki Kaurismaki, the Finnish filmmaker. He made films like Le Havre, The Other Side of Hope. And um, yeah, there's all these kind of like funny, quirky touches. You know, his best friend is this guy called Fahad, who's a bit older than him. He's obsessed with Freddie Mercury and with chickens. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and uh, <laughs> yeah, you just bought into this world and, and kind of taught, You're um, not, not taught, taught is the wrong word because it's not a didactic film, but you sort of, yeah, launched into this world and and kind of, you learn about how it feels to to be in this very strange liminal space.
0: Um, we're going to have a clip, um, Simon, so a clip from the trailer um, of Limbo to give us a little bit of a flavour.
3: A funny thing happened to Omar on his way to freedom.
2: Hey, you one of the refugees?
0: Yes. Fate took a detour. What's your name, Paul? Omar. Right, Omar. Don't pull up straight or like
2: rape anyone, right? Okay. You want to back up to town, Paul. Now
1: he's stuck in limbo.
2: What would you do if they let you stay? I would like to wear
1: suit and work in office. I was taking a chance to make life better. I want to play for
0: Chelsea Football Club. So that is a clip from Limbo, new from the director Ben Sharrock. That's out on the 30th of July. Simon, you said this isn't a didactic film, but with kind of serious subject matter treated in a very funny way, as we can tell from the, the trailer there. His, a man awaiting the result of his asylum request. How light is Ben Sharrock with that quite serious material?
1: What he does is he kind of builds this picture of a, a very flawed and frustrating system, but sort of as a character portrait. And so really it's more about Omar's journey and, and Omar's experience. But but there are kind of like quite wry um, moments to to reflect on sort of how that system works and, and the inherent absurdity of it. It's got an incredible opening sequence, um, which sort of is more on the funny side of things, where we see these two people running a cultural awareness 101 class and they're dancing what well, I can in a way I can only describe as very seductively and then suddenly the male dance partner puts his hand on the woman's bum and she says no and then she turns to the class of um, of refugees and says now what has he done wrong <laughs> and so <laughs> And um, so, yeah, I I think like the the sense of humour kind of stops things from getting too preachy. But ultimately, we're we're with Omar all the way and it's his emotional journey. We see him on the phone to his mum, who's in Turkey and kind of having this like quite heartbreaking personal journey. But it's so internalised. It's not not sort of a a traditional tearjerker in the way that we might expect.
0: OK, well, that is Limbo from the director, Ben Sharrick. Um, thanks very much, Simran. Uh, moving on cinematically, um, your next choice is Wildfire. This is a film set on the Irish border about two sisters um, who've sort of come back home. Um, where are where are we? Uh, uh, well, other than on the Irish border, never a troublesome place even now, of course. Uh, where are we with this one, Simran?
1: Well, so this is a film, um, the first film from a director called Cathy Brady. And it's a really strong and really interesting directorial debut. And as you mentioned, it's about two sisters, Kelly and Lauren. And Kelly has sort of disappeared off grid for a year. Um, And and they're very kind of close in age, and they, they grew up very closely together. And so when she returns, it sort of sets the whole town aflame, as it were. And we learn about their mother, who died by suicide and had mental health issues when they were children. And so the sort of the shadow of of that is sort of hanging over the relationship. And in a small Irish town, um, people tend to talk. And so there's all sorts of speculation about why Kelly disappeared and sort of what it means that she's back and what that's done to the community. And, you know, it's very religious and and very kind of conservative. And so she is really um, scrutinised by everybody around her. And so as she's unravelling and kind of reliving these moments of trauma from her past, um, her sister has to sort of stick up for her. And one of the best things about this film is the chemistry between the two women, between the two sisters. Um, they are just electric together and, uh, you know, you could watch them all day. Uh, sadly, one of the sisters, Nika McGuillon, she passed in 2019, just shortly after they were the shooting the film. So I think knowing that and watching it gives it this kind of strange haunted quality. But, yeah, they have this sort of manic energy and this intense bond, um, and it's really amazing to watch. Bet you're older the size of that belly on you. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hold on. That's all muscle, love. Here, muscle man, see if you can do this.
0: Watch on (laughs) my legs.
2: Yeah! You can't be doing that in here, (laughs) girl.
0: Why not? What are you doing? Cut it out or get out. Sure, they've done far worse and you still serve them. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah, far worse. You should go on now, girls. We're going anywhere. We haven't
3: done anything wrong. <laughs> Someone shut that fucking hanging up. <laughs> you don't know who you're dealing with, wee girl.
0: Yeah, I do. 12th of July, 92. Busy day for you, wasn't it, Cherry? My mum told me what you did. Our dad was one of the 26 your bomb killed. And that is a clip from Wildfire new from Kathy Brady that's out on September the 3rd um Simon, right there we've got the that a remarkable relationship between the two the two actresses I guess and and the two sisters and also how that that film seems to sort of so beguilingly turn on a sixth sense between comedy and 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 sort of something much darker right it's a difficult directorial feat to pull off that
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of darkness to the film. And I think you can kind of make the argument that with these two sisters who, they're not twins exactly, but they're sort of very similar in age, but they have quite different temperaments. One is very fiery and very erratic and very passionate. And the other one is a little bit more introverted and and kind of sensible. And they bring different sort of um, energies out in each other. I think, you know, it's a metaphor for a divided island, really, and that tension and, and the possibility of reconciliation is sort of explored through through those two sisters and through their bond.
0: Um, brilliant! Well, that is wildfire. It sounds fantastic. Um, new from Kathy Brady. Finally, uh, Simon, you've chosen The Green Knight, uh, starring the always welcome Dev Patel. Don't know a huge amount about this one. Set the scene for us a little bit.
1: So let me cast my mind back to my English literature degree and to studying medieval English and the tale of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight.
0: Oh, it's this one. Okay. (laughs)
1: It's that one. Um, (laughs) Give that the uh, dust off and the A24 treatment. Attach director David Lowry, who made Ain't Them Body Saints, A Ghost Story, and The Old Man and the Gun. Add in a little bit of Dev Patel, a bit of Alicia Vikander, and... uh, what do we have? A summer movie that I'm pretty excited about. Um, so obviously, this one's not out yet. I haven't seen it, so I could be as surprised as all of us upon watching it. But well, I know the story. You know, it's it's a kind of famous 14th century chivalric romance tale. I don't know if you 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 know the legend, Rob.
0: I think we. This was definitely this. This is lost in the mists of time. My <laughs> mists of time are mistier than yours, Simran, So I'm going to have to hand it over to you.
1: <laughs> okay, I just I didn't want to uh, over-explain the obvious. But so King, King Arthur's nephew is going, and um, he has accepted a challenge from this mysterious character, the Green Knight, who we don't know very much about. Um, and the challenge is that he will be allowed to have a shot at beheading him if he agrees that one year and one day later he would happily have the same done to him. And so uh, that's the kind of basic setup of, of the challenge. I love Dev Patel. I think he's brilliant across genres and uh, it'll be really interesting to kind of see him take on this particular period. I'd like to see him doing a bit of sword fighting on a
0: horse, yeah. Dev in chainmail is is a, is a is a good thing, right? Sold, I mean,
1: right? It's not, not to
0: like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so that is the Green Knight, and uh, we'll come. We're, we're going to recap everything uh, at the end of the program so that you can uh, make notes and uh, book those cinema tickets. Um, Simran, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Chris, Chris Power, we're going to turn to you now for some book selections starting with Three Rooms by Joe Hamyer.
2: Yeah, I'm not going to test your uh, knowledge of medieval literature. Don't worry. It's uh... <laughs> Well, that's a great
0: relief. I mean, I, <laughs> I always like it when it happens live. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, Three Rooms is is really interesting. It's a short novel uh, divided into three parts, which describes a young woman's life as she lives in the three rooms of the title. The first is a a flat in Oxford where she's working at the university. The second is a sublet not even a room, a sublet couch in West London, where she moves after she gets a job at a Tatler-like magazine. Joe Hamia worked, I believe, at Tatler, and going on the evidence of this book didn't have a particularly good time there. It's a very entertaining part of the book. And third, the parental home, because the jobs that her skills, you know, allow her to do really pay too little for anyone who isn't independently wealthy to get by on. The ability to work and earn enough to live Is very central to the book's concerns. Um, And it really it's a book that really gives a sense of what it's like to be a an educated, yes, but financially insecure young woman of colour in Britain today. Um, Hamia's a really exciting new voice. She's very good at awkward social comedy. I laughed a lot reading this, but it isn't purely comedy by any means. There's a lot of melancholy in the book, and it's quite it's probably. A philosophical novel more than anything, but also a very poetic one. The language is, is highly patterned and often quite unusual and unexpected, and that really enlivens everything that she pays attention to, whether it's leaves on the pavement or the way a parent talks to Alexa or Britain leaving the EU. She's very smart and incisive about prejudice and privilege and inequality, and also about the oddness of human interaction pretty much all the interactions in this novel are, are almost alien in a way there's a lot of estrangement going on which i found um really entertaining and quite quite relatable yeah
0: and she's i mean th- this seems like you mentioned britain leaving the eu and all the rest of it and, and 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 this seems like a novel kind of written in very much in in real in real time how does how, how does it's, it's been something discussed a lot how fiction has handled sort of current events, Ali Smith doing it sort of so adroitly. Um, what's Joe Hamier's technique with this, Chris?
2: Yeah, well, I think uh, there's a lot about Brexit in the book, and it, it's, it's set in 2018. Um, I think it just sort of underlines this economic precarity for someone like her. And there seems to be a class, whether that's at Oxford or whether that's at this. Tatler-like magazine, um, Tatler-like, all lawyers listening, you know, are, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's, there's a sort of class of people who are basically okay, they're kind of above this, they're not really affected by the changes, you know, they've got like wealth to fall back on, I guess, or property or whatever it was, whatever it is. But for someone like her or her generation, there's more a kind of, it represents a sort of closing down of opportunity, I suppose, which is a really powerful, powerful strand in the book.
0: Uh, well, it's always great to celebrate celebrate a debut novel. That is Three Rooms by Joe Hamier, published on the 8th of July. Um, Next up, someone that's a little bit more uh, in, the, in the sort of literary mainstream. This is Intimacies, new from Katie Kitamura. Um, an interesting novelist, always, um, Kitamura. Um, w- w- what's this new one about, Chris?
2: Yeah, so this is about a translator. She's part Singaporean. She's been living in New York and she moves to The Hague in the Netherlands to work at a um, was something very much like the International Criminal Court. Katie Kitamura, in her in her acknowledgement, is sort of goes to painstaking lengths to say it's not the International Criminal Court, but but you know, it's a lot like it. Another uh, is it Tatler, but it's a bit yeah, like it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. She's she's a lot kinder to the International Criminal Court than Joe Henry is the Tatler. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting book. It's 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 episodic and you kind of you drift along with the narrator through a succession of partly mundane partly strange events you know she has dinner at a friend's apartment she learns someone was mugged outside that building on the same night she becomes kind of obsessed with the victim um she moves into her boyfriend's apartment just as he goes to Lisbon to sort out a divorce from his wife. And he's like, I'll be back in a week. And then he's gone for weeks and like stops stops contacting her. And so all these events kind of build into this quite eerie sense, even though they all sort of unspool very organically, the cumulative effect is really striking. There's a menace and a mystery that just builds and builds. It's a real page turner, in fact, But the thrills, the mysteries at the heart of it are kind of Existential, rather than than sort of traditional mystery events. That said, there are several great set piece scenes. My favourite of which is uh, an occasion when the narrator is asked to um, to translate at a, at a private meeting with this this dictator from an unnamed African state who's being tried at the court. And the attention Kitamura pays to his dress, his body language, the strange collusion between him and her as his interpreter um, is really extraordinary. It's really powerful. And it's one of several intimacies described in the book, nearly all of which are actually extremely uncomfortable and ambiguous and ethically murky. It's one of those books that sort of keeps you guessing about everything, even what it's actually about right up until the ending, which really, which really delivers, delivers a punch. It's really, really impressive
0: well that is Intimacies by Katie Kittemura and that's out on the 5th of August Chris your final choice um, it's a reissue of a book that was originally published in 1995 and it's about jungle music in London um, so it around four young black men who are coming of age and it's called Junglist, it's by Two Fingers and James T. Kirk why, why is this being reissued now?
2: Why is it being reissued right now? That's a good question. I mean, repeater books are reissuing it and they they like to um, sort of work outside the mainstream. And I guess this book originally came from outside the mainstream. I think it was it was commissioned as part of this series called Backstreets back in the 90s. Nothing to do with Backstreet Boys. Totally at the other end of the spectrum for, for you know, <laughs> for relevance and coolness.
0: Oh, too bad for all our Backstreet ab- addicted listeners. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, but it was sort of off the back of, there was a book called Yardi that made a lot of noise in the early 90s that was sort of sold outside raves and in clothes shops and outside of traditional publishing um, and became a real sensation. But whereas that book was was sort of about someone, you know, in Hackney rising up through through the drug gangs and was very violent, this is really different. This is much more about the experience of going partying and going clubbing. There's no real plot to speak of. It just tells the story of four young black men going to a series of London clubs and house parties over the course of a single weekend. It's written in, I'd say, quite an ambitious style that the narration is shared between the four main characters. And it sometimes slides into a stream of consciousness, which sometimes really works and sometimes really doesn't. It's quite a messy book. China Mieville, the, the um, sci-fi writer has called it, a neglected text of, of backstreet modernism, which I like a lot. It's, it's rough around the edges. It's occasionally naive or, or dull even, but at times it's amazing, particularly as a document of what London clubbing and really UK clubbing was like at that time. There are really great passages about the feel of sliding a record from its sleeve and queuing it up on a deck or rolling a spliff or, or moving from the entrance through to the dance floor at Ministry of Sound, or they got a laser drome in Peckham and dancing to to drum and bass. And, you know, the feel of that when drum and bass was really, you know, such a new and exciting music. Um, And I think the greatest strength of the book and why I wanted to, to recommend it is this kind of time capsule quality it has. I mean, I'm in my forties, and I was listening to drum and bass and going out to clubs. At the time this book was was written, I didn't know about the book at the time. I would have I would have hoovered it up, but um, it would be possible for someone to write about that time now. But the unavoidable nostalgia, I think, would obscure the documentary aspect. Um, it'd get in the way, and and no one's more nostalgic than an old raver, as as YouTube <laughs> comments uh, prove time and time again. But the fact that this was written then. Is what makes it so exciting to read even if some of the more whimsical passages are a bit like an early hours conversation that you're kind of desperate to escape but for the most part you know like the best club nights you just don't want it to end that sounds amazing the segwayne and the green knight of drum and bass (laughs) uh it's
0: the junglist by two fingers and james c kirk that's out on the 10th of august that sounds amazing thanks chris uh so much for your book recommendations today We're going to turn last, but of course not least, to Kathleen Fox Davis on the art scene this summer. Um, And we're beginning stateside, Kathleen. Um, We're going to the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art in Colorado. What are we seeing there?
3: Yes, we are. We are at the Contemporary Art Museum in Boulder, Colorado. And for many of you, if you haven't been there, it is a really exciting space. This exhibition that I would love to recommend or am recommending is called The Stubborn Influence of Painting. And it's looking at nine artists. Eight of them are American, and one lonely Londoner is included in the exhibition. Aww. But it's looking at a multidisciplinary approach to to making art. But how painting has had an influence in this, and you've got things from sculpture to textile to. There's a lot of photography in the in the exhibition, which is obviously my. Uh, personal interest. But this is a conversation that we've been having amongst colleagues in the art world and clients is that we're seeing more and more as collectors are not single genre collectors anymore. And in the same way, artists are finding ways of moving outside of being a single genre or single medium artist. So for so long, particularly in photography, you are a photographer with a capital P, not an artist, you didn't want to be considered an artist. And we're really seeing with the rise of, of contemporary in the opening of what that definition of contemporary art is, is a lot of photographers becoming sculptors and incorporating ideas of painting and drawing and etching within their work. And this exhibition really highlights that. There are two artists that are on my personal um, wish list, Alexandra Hedison and Nikolai Ishuk. Um, Both are looking at, obviously, painterly aspects of photography. With Alexandra, she is finding... Veils, if you will. So think of it as uh, when you walk through, particularly now the high street, where so many closed businesses will have uh, whitewashed windows. And she's finding abstract compositions within those and calling them found paintings. And they are, they're disarming and they're stunning. And it's showing us a new way of looking at our world. But it is simply her eye that is finding things that are already out there and the beauty of what's already out there. The same way with Nikolai, he is taking the medium of photography, but there are no cameras involved. It is all about adding chemicals and lacquer and working this expired paper to find these amazing, almost brutalist forms in what he calls his um, wall sculptures. And they are dynamic and they they fill your space. They're not just two-dimensional pieces on a wall, but both are really pushing the idea of what a photograph can be. And it's really exciting to see a, um, a city like Boulder embracing these sort of new ideas, both in photography, but also artwork that traditionally has been considered craft, like textile and ceramics, and elevating it to what has always been the pinnacle of the
0: art world, the painting. OK, well, thank you very much. That's the stubborn influence of painting at the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art in Colorado. Heading a bit further west, uh, we're going to Los Angeles to the Getty Center. This is uh, a, a new show for the Italian photographer Mario Giacomelli. Just two consonants away from greatness. <laughs> or maybe maybe this is greatness. Um, I was not familiar with Mario's work. Can, can you ta- can you fill us in here, Kathleen?
3: Mario Giacomelli is widely considered one of Italy's foremost photographers. He was working really from the early 1950s onward. He bought his first camera, I think, in 1953. Completely self-taught, left school at age 12, born into poverty, never left uh, his region, the Marche region along the Adriatic coast in Italy. Um, so that's where he spent his entire life, and except for a couple of uh, photojournalism uh, assignments, that's where he stayed. So he very much is being driven by his own eye but as we look and uncover his work which is what this exhibition does i believe there are almost 200 images in the um in the oh sorry it's 110 works in this exhibition they are all from a single collection of daniel greenberg and susan steinhauser who are actually helped fund a large portion of the getty so this is a celebration both of their collective eye uh, and also of uh, of Giacomelli as an artist and revisiting him. Um, the only reason I think anyone would know Giacomelli at the moment is he has the famous image of the priests dancing in the snow. In his work, he is um, shooting landscapes but but quickly taking them to almost an aerial point well, an aerial point of view by removing the horizon line and really changing the perspective and point of view and Weirdly, in the early 1960s he actually started getting on a tractor and creating his own markings in the farmland to then photograph so he was engaging in a form of land art at the time when land art was really gaining popularity in the 60s and 70s in America and beyond. So whether he was ahead of the curve or someone that was very much aware and attentive and experimenting in his own way with some of the most avant-garde ideas within the art world, he very much, like the last exhibition discussed, was taking theories of the greater art world and applying it to photography at a time when people didn't do that. So the photography we know best coming out of the 50s and 60s and 70s was uh, based on advertising or photojournalism. They were of war fronts or in some way tied to a social idea. And Giacomelli was creating art with a capital A with his work.
0: We'll, we'll recap where you can see that at the end. That's Giacomelli. Um, and finally, we're going to be back in London at the Barbican. This is called How We Live Now. And this is on now and runs until December. This is about feminism and buildings and access and all these different things. This just sounds like a complex thing. How 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 is, how is this approached, Kathleen?
3: This is a really unexpected exhibition, um, both in how it has been curated and produced, but also with how timely the subject matter is. So what we are looking at here is the Matrix Feminist Design Group and looking at architecture and design and the spaces that that we live in and what it says about our cultural values. Now, the Matrix Feminist Design Group was formed out of the new architecture movement in the early 1980s, where the new architecture movement was really a sort of a unionized uh, way of architects coming together to dis- support each other, discuss problems, ideas. But what... What came out of that is the women of the group still ended up being the ones making the tea, not the ones being heard. So that the matrix group is almost a subset that came out of a necessary group that was needed for the entire architectural profession in general. But we're looking at how buildings reflect the values of our society both from the viewpoint of the 1980s till really 1994, which is when Matrix was active in London, actually creating spaces and community centres, but turning a view with today's values on these. I think after 15, 16 months of working from home, I mean, we're recording this from home. Was this how our spaces were built to be used? Looking at what we value... And how we use those spaces, are they inclusive from a standpoint of race, of um, sexual orientation and preference, of gender, and how we use things? I mean, one of the um, the lead images that they have for this show, I mean, I felt the pain. It is a woman struggling up a huge staircase, uh, what looks like a, uh, a brutalist, Bit of architecture, perhaps in the Barbican itself, with a pram, and we think about these things. There was huge discussions uh, with the what was it, twenty twelve Olympics, and how accessible our city was to those that perhaps were uh, could not handle stairs. And we saw huge changes happen there. But with this past year, Black Lives Matter even has expanded people's understanding of an inclusive society and how spaces can be made for everyone. And with this exhibition, it's not, it's not a pretty exhibition. It's not beautiful. It's looking at the archive of the Matrix Design Group, and looking at projects that it has created, specifically with a mind around, it was a children's centre, I think that they've recreated in a way that looks almost like a half finished building project, with their own archive pasted up around the space. But also it, not only celebrates what progress was made, but really puts a lens towards what was missing and who wasn't included then and leaves it as an open discussion of where do we go next and how do we create a a more inclusive space that is reflective of the values of what should be public, should be private and and moving on from there.
0: Well, it sounds incredible. Um, Kathleen that is how we live now reimagining spaces with matrix feminist design cooperative at the Barbican we drink their health Um, that is all we've got time for today Thank you so much um, for your wonderful choices. I really enjoyed talking to you all today. Um, My thanks to Kathleen Fox Davies, Simran Hands and Chris Power for their selections. Um, Notebooks at the ready now, as we recap everything we just heard. Kathleen says, get down to how we live now at the Barbican in London and over in the US, head to the stubborn influence of painting at Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art and Mario Giacomelli at at the... Okay. I've got I've got it written down here as the Jerry Center. I think it's the Getty, but that's quite a good typo in LA. Chris Power recommends you get a copy of The Junglist by Two Fingers and James T Kirk. Intimacies by Katie Kitamura. And Three Rooms, the debut novel by Joe Hamier. And if the weather continues as it is here in the UK, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the cinema. So why don't you go to see Limbo, Wildfire and The Green Knight, as recommended by Simran, of course. Monocle on Culture was produced by Holly Fisher and I've been Robert Bounds and we'll be back at the same time next week. But for the time being, thank you very much for tuning in.